We're in John chapter 12 today. But a few weeks ago, uh, we had report cards released for our family. And of course, I have three children, so sometimes I get confused as to whose report card I'm looking at. And uh, I remember two of them were emailed to me, and so I pulled them up and looked at them, and you know they were fine or whatever. I was okay with it. After about a week or so, I realized that I had not seen one of the report cards. And it wasn't emailed, or I just hadn't seen one, and I wasn't sure why. And so now normally we have an app that tracks their grades, and so I knew there wasn't anything bad out there, but I was curious why I hadn't seen it. And this child usually makes A's and B's, you know, uh, pretty good grades, and, and none of our children do, you know, do bad, but we, we just tell them A's and B's is fine as long as you're trying your hardest and, and everything. Uh, but I noticed this child had straight A's, and they were like really high averages on A's. And I thought that was odd, you know, like what happened here, right? And so I asked my wife about it, and my wife said, oh, well, this child, they found out that if they make straight A's, they get to be a part of this special club that goes and does fun things and travels. So that's why that child was motivated to all of a sudden do well. It wasn't because her dad said make straight A's. Uh, they figured out, hey, if I do straight A's, I get to do these cool and fun things. It's amazing what can motivate us, amen? What motivates you in your life? What motivates you to even be here today? What motivates you to come to church, to be here at 11.32 a.m. right here today in this building? Why are you even here today? A recent survey gave the 10 most popular reasons why people are motivated to attend worship to attend church, and I'm guessing that people uh, selected multiple ones of these, but, but of the 10, the, the least most popular, 16%, was that 16% of people would come to church to please their partner or spouse. So 84 of y'all really don't care if your partner or spouse is pleased or not. 84% of y'all don't care or not, right? Uh, but but not, uh, number nine, 19% uh, come to church to meet new people or to socialize. 31% come to church because they feel obligated to be here. 37% said they, they, they attend church to continue their family's religious traditions. 57% say they come to be a part of a faith community. 59% say they find the sermons valuable. So I guess 41% of you really don't care if the sermons are good or not. And that's fine. You can just peace out in this area. I don't know. You know. 66%. Uh, come for, because they find comfort in times of trouble or sorrow. 68% come to be a better person. 69% so their children will have a moral foundation. And 81% come to church to become closer to God. And I would say most of those are good reasons to be here, and they definitely have an effect on why we come here. I was looking at that list, and I thought to myself, there's some things missing here on this list. And maybe, maybe they're missing because they weren't an option. Maybe the poll was flawed. But I thought about and prayed about what's the real overarching reason why we should be here, why we should come. And I think the major reason missing was, I, I, when I looked at this, was this. Uh, we come here to, to pour out our thankfulness and worship to the God who has saved us. That's why we're here. There's a lot of reasons why we should come, but, but our, our pure number one motivation is we should be here to pour out our thankfulness and our worship to the God who has saved us. Now, maybe that wasn't an option on the survey, and it probably wasn't. But until we get to that point as believers, where our 
pure motivation, our, our, our foremost motivation is to just sing praises like we did today. Sing with our hearts uh, to worship God in the thankfulness for what he has done for us. We are going to struggle with our faith. We're going to struggle with our faith until our pure motivation, our proper motivation is realized. Today we're going to look at some people in scripture who had different motivations when it came to following Jesus. And we're in John chapter 12 here starting in verse 1. Scripture says that six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... He who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor... You always have with you, but you do not always have me. Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship here today, uh, Lord, we, we, we thank you so much for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we, we thank you so much for being able to, to worship here today in spirit and in truth. And Father, as we look at your word today, that, that your word would be burned into our hearts today. That you would show each and every one of us what we need to know when it comes to the motivation of following you. Lord, I pray that my words reflect your heart today and that you fill me with the power of your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Today, I want to show us what motives should look like when it comes to following Jesus. What, what motives what are, should our motives look like when it comes to following Christ? Number one, we need to be humble with our motives. We need to be humble with our motives. Look at verse 1. It says that six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So in the preceding chapter, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He was dead. He was in the tomb. Jesus came and brought him back to life. It was the miracle of all miracles. Now, Mary and Martha in this story were Lazarus' sisters. And so they had a dinner on the heels of this resurrection, a dinner for Jesus. And it was this event, it was this resurrection of Lazarus that hastened the plot to kill Jesus, look at John chapter 11, it says this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. 
So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So when Jesus brought a man back to life, when he finally did the miracle of all miracles, then the ruling religious establishment took notice and they feared greatly. They said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then we'll have all sorts of problems in our lives. John eleven fifty three 53 says this, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So this Resurrection of Lazarus was what put the wheels in motion for Jesus' last week on earth. Now those in the inner circle of Jesus, they probably had some idea of the reality that Jesus was in trouble. But Mary here, Mary of Bethany as she is known, she seemed to know exactly what was about to happen. Now this is not the first time we see Mary, this is the third time we see her, the third and final time. But if you tr trace the three appearances of her in the Bible, it's very interesting. The first time we see her is in John chapter 10, in verse 38, it says this. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Can you imagine uh, being Martha, having Jesus come into your house, make sure everything's clean, right? Make sure the, the floors are clean. Make sure the toys are picked up off the carpet. Make sure the food's thrown away. Everything. You're going to want your house to look spick and span for Jesus Christ to be in your house. Amen. But Martha, verse 39, had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So think about it. Martha's the one cleaning everything, getting everything done. Jesus is there teaching, and Mary's just right there listening to Jesus. Martha's frustrated. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving. As Jesus was teaching, Martha was thinking, oh gosh, he's sitting on the good couch. <laughs> oh no, don't put that, don't, don't get him, make sure he has enough drink, get him a refill. She's all concerned and worried about everything in the event. And the Bible says she was distracted with her serving. Serving is a great thing, but Martha was distracted by it. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Jesus didn't care about everything in the house. He wanted his message to be heard and listened to and obeyed. Martha, whose gifting was in serving and was in hospitality, became anxious with all these things that needed to get accomplished. But Mary sat there at the feet of Jesus, soaking up her time with Jesus. So from the very beginning, we see that Mary had a proper understanding of what she's supposed to be doing when Jesus was around. The second time she's mentioned is in John 11, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, her brother. And when Mary heard that Jesus had come and was looking for her, she left those who were mourning in her house. There was, a, there was a bunch of people there comforting her in the house, mourning the death. She leaves them at the house, meets Jesus on the road, and that Jesus met her. We get the shortest verse in the Bible. It said, Jesus wept and had sorrow with her, and they wept together. 
So it seems that Mary always seemed to know the appropriate reactions to have when Jesus was around. That's important because when we get to this next section, it seems that Mary is doing something very strange. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I know if I walk in my house sometimes and somebody has sprayed something, I smell it. But imagine what this house would have smelled like. The whole pound bottle of ointment all over the floor. Martha probably couldn't imagine seeing that sight. Now this perfume would be worth around $60,000. That's how much it was worth. And not only here is Mary giving Jesus her best financially, she's wiping his feet with her hair. Well, what is that about? Well, feet were and still are, in my opinion, considered a dirty part of the body. They were dirtier back in the biblical times because you wore sandals everywhere you went, walking down dusty roads. And so for someone to wash someone else's feet or to wash your own feet was a necessity that had to get done from time, from time to time. But here is Mary not washing his feet, but pouring expensive perfume on his feet and wiping it with her hair. Now, woman's hair was, and it's still many places is, considered her crown, and the Bible says her glory. Woman's hair is her glory. So Mary of Bethany is, is humbling herself here by pouring this super expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and then wiping off the excess of it, not with paper towels or baby wipes, with her hair. What in the world is she doing? Because of what she's doing, we can see this passage and we get the point of it. That Mary was humble in her adoration. She was humble in her worship of Jesus. And also by using nard, which was what the embalmers put on the feet of dead bodies. She's somehow signifying and symbolizing Jesus' future track. You know, symbols in church are important. Brings back memories. It helps us focus. This is why... The pulpit's in the center because it focuses on God's word, which is what we need to hear. This is why we have God's word, stained glass windows, different things like this that, that, that symbolize certain things that when we think about going to worship, we, our mind thinks about those things. Symbols help us worship many times. And she's symbolizing through this act of hum- humility, Jesus' death. She's worshiping him. With a week left in his life. Her motives were humble. Well, Billy Graham was interviewed on the television uh, show Primetime Live back in 1992. And he was asked, Dr. Graham, what do you want people to say about you when you're gone? Of course, we know he passed away a few years ago. And Billy Graham responded by saying, I don't want people to say anything about me. I want them to talk to me about my Savior. The only thing I want to hear is Jesus saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Then he says, but I'm not sure I'm going to hear that. (laughs) That kind of makes us chuckle because we think about it, man, if anybody's going to be told well done, it's Billy Graham. But all he was doing was what he was called to do, and he did it the best he could do it. 
And that's why he wants to hear that. That's why he hopes he'll hear that. Right? It seems that Billy Graham was humble, even in his motivations, or at least he claimed to be. We believe that he was. It's not always easy to decipher motives when we look at a person's actions. But in this case, God's word makes clear here that Mary's motives were pure and that she recognized who Jesus was. And so there's a real blessing when we serve God out of true humility and devotion. Secondly, when it comes to our motivation for following Christ, we need to be honest with our motives. Be honest with our motives. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then the Bible gives us something interesting. It actually tells us what's really going on. Verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money back, he used to help himself. To what was put into it. So 300 denarii was worth about an average yearly salary of a working person, about $60,000 in today's, today's uh, economy. And in this rare instance, the Bible actually uncovers the motive of a person's heart. He says one thing, but the Bible tells us what he's really feeling. So he says one thing, but he had an ulterior motive. Isn't it wonderful that there's nobody out there that does such a thing? Oh, but there are, aren't they? And oh, but we do it too, don't we? It's hard sometimes to know the motives of our own heart. Judas says, why would you waste this money? Think of all the people we could have helped and sheltered and fed with all this money. Think of all the people we could have helped. The Bible says that Judas was a thief. That he really wanted to keep some of the money. See, if, if Mary were to, to, to sell this, then she would give that 60 grand to the disciples, and the disciples would, would hand it over to Judas, and Judas would have possession of it, and gosh, $100 here, 1000 here, who's going to notice? And that's what he did. Money given to the kingdom of God, and he stole it. Now, jo now Judas says one thing, he says one thing and, and comes off all spiritual, but he was dishonest with his motives. Well, there were four high school boys in town who they couldn't resist the temptation to skip morning class. You know, spring fever is April. You know how that was? You're ready to kind of get the school year over, and, 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 and the kids get a little rambunctious and things like that. And, and so after lunch, they, they, they showed up at school. And they told their teacher that the car had a flat tire. And much to their relief, the teacher said, she smiled and said, well, you know, you missed a quiz this morning, so take your seats and get out a pencil and a paper. So she smiled and she waited as they settled down and got ready for the questions. And she said, okay, first question, which tire was flat? <laughs> it would be a miracle if all four said the same one. Amen. You know, the truth usually comes out. Amen. It can be very tempting, very easy to, to feign a spiritual motive like Judas did, but really have a, a selfish motive, even when it comes to following Jesus. You might have an idea for a ministry, 
Ask yourself this idea for the ministry. Are you really being honest to yourself about why you want this ministry? Will this ministry really help people? Will it really reach people? Or is it deep down something that you want for yourselves? We all have to do this. In other words, is this idea you have for a ministry about Jesus? Or is it about yourself? You know, as a pastor, I often get thrown ideas to me around about certain ministries or programs. Hey, pastor, have you thought about doing this? Or you should do this? Or what about that? And, and I'm a pretty optimistic person. I, I usually give people the benefit of the doubt. I, I, I naturally assume people are being honest with me when they say those things. But I've learned through experience that's not always the case. And so I have to pray for wisdom, that God would give me wisdom to discern proper motivations from improper motivations. We all want to believe that all of us, even ourselves, have the true and proper motivation, but we don't. Judas looked like he was sincere, but he was not. So not only do we need to pray about others' motivations, we need to pray that we're constantly asking our own selves, why do we do the things that we do? Are our motives honest? Are they dishonest? See, Jeremiah 17 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sometimes we get lost in that with our own selves. Verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So we don't always know the motivation of others' hearts. We definitely don't always know the motivation of our own hearts. So we have to pray about what that motivation is. That's why the term follow your heart is horrible advice. Because the heart is deceitful. One day it might lead you into truth. One day it might lead you into error. So instead of telling people follow your heart, what we should say is don't follow your heart. Follow God's heart. Follow the heart of God in this situation. You remember the bracelets years ago when I was in high school, the what would Jesus do bracelets? They've come back. Some people still wear them. It's actually really good advice. What's God's heart say about this? How did Jesus handle that? How would God have you to do that? We often don't know if our motives are pure or not. But we can take our motives and line them up with God's word and find out if they are. And then verse 10 of Jeremiah says that God will search our heart and test our mind according to our fruit. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'll read that. Probably not good all the time. See, eventually, if our motives are untrue, they'll be exposed. And Judas's motives were exposed when he hung himself. Not everybody at the time of this writing when these events were taking place, knew that Judas was a liar and knew that he was a thief. But Jesus knew. I'm thinking about all the times Jesus could have said something and never said anything about Judas until the Last Supper when he calls him out. But all those years, and he knew who Judas was. So we need to be honest with our motives because God knows our motives. We're not going to fool God. And sometimes people will as well. Third, finally, not only are we humble and honest with our motives, we're Christ-focused with our motives. And I thought about this after the first sermon. I should have come up with the word honoring. Then I'd have three H's and it would have been great. Be honoring, Christ-focused with our motives. Verse 7, 
Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. He says, Judas, Jesus knowing exactly who he is, get off her case. She's preparing me for my burial. And then he says something interesting, verse 8. He says, for the poor, you will always have with me, with you, but you do not always have me. Now, this is not a slight to what we call the mercy ministries. He's not saying, see, look, feeding the poor is useless. It's not all about that. It's not what he's saying. He's not diminishing the importance of taking care of people with needs, which as Christians we are called to do, which the church is called to do. He says there will be a time and a place for that, but right now my time is coming to an end. And she is concerned more about spending time with her Savior than serving the house or feeding the poor, as we know Mary is. Feeding the poor is a ministry, but it's not the ministry. So we must maintain a proper Christ focus on what it is that we do. And if we had a truly had a Christ focus, then a lot of our opinions about what church should be doing, a, a, lot, a lot of our false motivations would cease. We wouldn't really care about music style and worship because we just want to worship. We all have preferences. But we really wouldn't care about the style because we'd care more about are we honoring Christ and making disciples in our worship music. And I'll tell you, both of our services do that. Both of our services honor Christ with their music. And if they didn't, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't really care about our money and, and, and the church budget so much. I mean, we need to care about it, obviously. But we wouldn't get wrapped up maybe in the details too much if, if we realized that really all the money is God's money anyway. And it's just a means to and in to make disciples. And we wouldn't really care about if a particular ministry gets highlighted or not because the end game of every ministry is to make disciples. Amen? See, we're all a family. We're all on the same page. We all have the same goal, to make disciples. That's it. If we don't, we need to repent. We need to repent to God for our selfishness because there's no place for selfishness in the kingdom of God or the church. But there's a place for Marys who know what it's all about as they worship Jesus. See, if we're going to do well at following Christ, we need to be Christ-focused with our motives. Well, years ago, y'all have heard of Colonel Sanders of KFC? Years ago, he was on an airplane ride. He was 89 years old, and uh, he was he uh, was kind of a nice guy and all this stuff. And and he had gotten his seat at the front of the plane, and he he closed his eyes and he tried to he tried to take a, a little bit of a nap. And somewhere in the black back of the plane, a child had been screaming and yelling for a long time, just really irritating everyone. Right, and the one stewardess came up to Colonel Sanders and said, "I'm so sorry, sir." I've tried giving him candy. We've tried books and games. There were no iPads back then. Tried everything, right? Nothing seems to help. He just keeps crying and yelling. So the colonel said, I, I've got to go speak to that child. So he got up off his feet and went 
and with his cane, made all the way back down to the end of the plane, and, and, and he got there, and the stewards were like, well, what's he going to do, right? A few minutes later, the colonel came back, sat back down, closed his eyes, and, and, and they said, oh, thank you so much. He'd stopped crying. The, baby, the, the little toddler was quiet. Thank you so much, colonel. Thank you for helping us. And the colonel said, I didn't do it for you. I did it for the child. See, when a child's crying, sometimes we're more concerned about our annoyance than the fact that the child is crying. The child needs to be comforted. The child can't always explain what the problem is. They don't know. It's whatever he did, he comforted that child. I don't know if he gave him a drumstick or what, but he comforted that child. <laughs> See, when we do things for the kingdom of God, it's not, we don't do things because people are annoyed or because people complain. We do it for the need of those who are in need. We do it for the need of the children, the need of the people, so to speak. And there are financial needs in our community. There are physical needs. And Lord, we know there are spiritual needs. And just like a child who's crying can't always quite understand why they are upset. There are people in our world today that don't understand why they need Jesus Christ. And so we are called to do things for the people with the needs because we're doing them from the heart of God. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together today, we, we look at this passage and we hope that we would be a Mary and not a Judas we look at this and think to ourselves, what would I do in that situation? A lot of times, Lord, we become a Martha. We're kind of caught in between. We want to be there with you. We seem busy and frazzled. And sometimes we need you just to take us aside and say to us, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled. Come sit at my feet. Lord, that we would have your heart, Father, as we continue ministering in our community, as we attend worship here, and, and as we experience this wonderful time together, Lord, that people we know in our lives one day will be here. They too will experience that. Father, there is someone in here today that has not placed their faith in you. They would do so today. They would make that decision today. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name.